It says in, in, John, or in Matthew chapter 14, After that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid a hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put her to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as, as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of those who were with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to the mother. And then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So we have here the account of the beheading of John the Baptist. Let's look again at verse number one. This is Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod the Tetrarch was there at the end of Jesus's life. Now, I want you to understand something about the name Herod biblically. Herod was um, a title. It wasn't a um, person. So there was lots of different Herods. Even, even um, Nero or Caesar in, Israel, in, in Rome was a title. And there was lots of different Caesars. But Herod the Great was the one that was there when Jesus was born. You remember the story. Herod the Great, the wise men came to him and he said, when you find Jesus, bring word back because I want to go worship him. Did Herod the Great want to worship Jesus? No, he was a sick, sadistic, twisted ruler who thought that he was a king and didn't want anybody else threatening his rule. And when the wise men didn't come back, Herod the Great sent his soldiers into Bethlehem to find Jesus. And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers went into Bethlehem and all the boys that were two years old and younger, they stacked them up on their spears and killed every one of them. Jesus was warned in a dream. His father was Joseph to flee. And where did Jesus flee to at two years old? to Egypt, where he was a refugee in Egypt for a season. We had a, we had a missionary. We have a missionary here. His name's Jeremy Bear, and he does work in, um, on the other side of the world. And he was there when the refugee, Syrian refugee crisis was happening. And there was a particular guy from Egypt, and he, and he was trying to br bridge a gap with this guy. And Jeremy said to this guy, he said, hey, I wanted to thank you because... When, when Jesus was a baby, he was a refugee in your country, and your country received him in. And the Egyptian guy was like, he was really blown away. He thought that was the coolest thing ever, to have this Christian thank him for letting Jesus come to his country and live there for a couple years as a refugee in Egypt. But I guess sometimes we forget that Jesus himself was a refugee. And then um, when, when Herod dies, that's Herod the Great. Jesus comes back and, and he doesn't come back to Bethlehem where he was born. Where does Jesus come back and grow up as a boy? In the city of Nazareth where his dad owns and starts a carpenter shop. And not, not necessarily carpentry like we would do today. Um, it's very possible that Jesus made furniture. It's very possible that Jesus' type of carpentry had to deal with the yoke that they would put over the oxen to pull the plow. And that, that Jesus would have been, um, it's possible he could have done some, a lot, of their, a lot of their carpentry was done. Their houses were built with stone, so a lot of stone masonry. Um, but anyways, Jesus lived there in Nazareth, and he grew up there. And, and then um, as he grew up, 
Herod the Great, who, who tried to kill the babies when Jesus was born and died, he split his kingdom up into four parts. And when you see that word tetrarch there in verse number one, tetrarch means a fourth or one quarter. Because this particular ruler was, um, was in charge of one quarter. Now, Herod and his family were highly dysfunctional. Herod the Great, we already talked about him. This Herod here, he, he's, he had four um, of his sons and he was going to divide the kingdoms up. And then two of them he thought would revolt against him while he was still alive. And so he murdered two of his sons. And then he didn't like one of his wives, so he had her murdered. They said in Rome of Herod that it was, it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. Because he was a madman and he was killing everybody in his family. Well, then this, this Herod, what he did was he went to another Herod, his brother Herod Philip, who was a ruler of another part of, of, of Israel, and he liked his wife. Her name was Herodias. So no big deal. It's my sister-in-law. She was also his niece because his brother married their niece. So she's his niece. She's his brother's wife. And he goes there and he likes her. So he takes her home with him, divorces his wife, and marries his brother's wife. Like Jerry Springer would have months of material with the Herod family. Like he could go on and on and on with all the drama that was in this family. And, and John the Baptist comes and he tells Herod to his face, this is wrong. You're living in sin and it's not right that you stole your brother's wife, divorced your wife, and now you're living with a woman and it, that's not your wife. And eventually, you know, whether you marry or not, it's still sin and wrong. And so John calls him on it. And as a result, this, his wife, who's also his niece, Herodias, she doesn't like John the Baptist and she has him arrested and put in prison. And then, and then let's look at verse number two. It says, and the servant said, and he said to his servants, this is Herod talking, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead and therefore the powers are at work within him. So Herod understood that John the Baptist had certain God-given powers, he called them, that they were also present in Jesus. No doubt he would have seen Jesus baptizing and healing and doing miracles and works. And so he saw Jesus and his, his conscience began to plague him that, that this Jesus must have been John the Baptist who he just murdered. And yet we know that it wasn't. And then it says in verse 3, For Herod had laid a hold of John, and it tells us the story next, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife. Hey, I want you guys to hold a finger there and I want you to find Jeremiah chapter 20 for me. One of the greatest stories, one of the coolest stories in the Bible. But in this story of John the Baptist who's in prison, everybody say prison. How many of you guys right now want to go to prison? How many of you guys think that's a good idea? Is that, is that anybody's like future? Is that any of your future goals for your life? When I grow up, I want to go like, Serve 20 years in San Quentin. Do some hard time at Pelican Bay. We had, this, we had this biker dude that started coming to church. And he was the real deal when it came to criminals. He was a criminal of criminals. He was a shot caller in prison. Had a life sentence in prison. Was, a bike, was in a biker gang. He's got tattoos from the top of his ears all the way down to his toes. He's like 6'5 and like 290 pounds, all muscle. And he's just this big... Man's man of a man, real deal, gangster looking um, shot caller that just got out of doing 18 years in Pelican Bay. 
and, and by a miracle of, of God, he shows up at church and he hates everything about it. And he's just there to cause trouble and find out what's wrong. He gets saved in our church, gives his life to Jesus, and, and he starts coming and getting involved and growing in Jesus. And we go to a men's retreat and Pastor Gerald is making fun of him in the men's retreat. And one of the other pastors gets up a little bit later and he's like, I don't know if Pastor Gerald knows or not where he's from. I think Pastor Gerald thinks Pelican Bay is a swim club. <laughs> he might want, someone might want to tell him that he didn't spend the last 18 years in a swim club. And you might want to be careful what you're saying about him. But, um, but prison is obviously not a desired location for any of us, right? But yet, you know what's interesting? So many of God's people in the Bible, they ended up in prison. Let's take a look at Jeremiah's story. Now, real briefly, just because you may, not, may or may not know the history of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is known as the blank, what prophet? One person's going to know. Jeremiah is called the what? The weeping prophet. That was his title or his nickname. And, and, and how would you like to be known as the crybaby prophet? But that was his title. And, and, and for 60 years, Jeremiah preached and nobody joined his church. Nobody converted. Nobody changed in 60 years. We've had that. We've seen that another time in the Bible, right? With, with Noah. Noah for 120 years preached and built a boat. And nobody, nobody believed and nobody changed. But they stayed faithful. Well, Jeremiah, this weeping prophet who was mightily used by God... He gets to this point in chapter 19 and 18 and leading up to 20, and he's doing exactly what God told him to do. Like, and God speaks so clear to this guy. And God showed up and said, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to 3rd Street and 5th Street on the corner, and I want you to stand there in this specific spot, and I want you to preach the gospel, and this is exactly what I want you to say. And Jeremiah says, okay, Lord, I'm going to go there. He shows up in the exact spot. He opens his mouth, and he prophesies the exact words that God told him to say. And as a result, the people pick him up and they put him in prison. Now, he's exactly in the center of God's will. And, 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 and you would feel and I would feel maybe a little bit like, God, I did exactly what you told me to do. And when, I, when I'm right in the center of your will, I shouldn't be in prison. What did I do wrong? Where did, where did I go bad? Why am I, why am I being put in prison? And then what we're going to see in the last half of Matthew chapter 14 is the disciples, according to Jesus's will, are in the center, in the perfect place where God's called them to be. And they're going to be in the midst of a storm and think they're going to die. So back to Jeremiah, right in the middle of God's will, he's in jail and he's frustrated. Many people have gotten discouraged in, in life. Every, every major Bible character that we see in the word of God goes through a season of discouragement. And we're something that we'll face. It's something that we will face in life. It's one of the greatest tools of Satan to keep you from moving forward in God is to discourage you. And never let Satan with his discouragement keep you from following the Lord. Well, Jeremiah, look at chapter 20 of Jeremiah in verse 7. It says, Oh Lord, you induced me and I, and I was persuaded you are stronger than I and, you, and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. That's not good. Everyone mocks me. That's not good. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. A reproach and a derision daily is not a good thing. And then look what he says. Then I said, so Jeremiah is in prison. He's frustrated and he makes a decision. Listen to his decision. I will not make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. I'm done, Lord. 
I've done everything you've asked me to do, and this is how you repay me. You put me in jail? Nobody listens to anything I say? People mock me? I'm in derision daily? Anybody feel that way? Anybody feel that you're going through derision or you're going through mocking or you're going through something that's discouraging or hard and you feel like, why God? Is it because I sinned and I'm outside of your will? Listen, it may or may not be, but oftentimes it doesn't mean because you're going through something hard. Don't assume that it's because you're outside of God's will. If God told you to do something and you just do it because you know God led you in that direction and it doesn't go like you thought it was going to go or as planned, that's a part of God's will. You're in a good place. And if it's hard, then you're really getting closer to knowing you're in God's will. If it's not easy and, and, it, and it creates things. Now, look at what Jeremiah said. Oh, I love this. Check this out. So Jeremiah just said what? I'm done. I'm not going to mention your name anymore, God. I had enough. Every time I do what you tell me to do, something bad happens. I end up in prison and now I'm done. I'm not talking anymore about you. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it back. And I could not. Somebody say amen. Right? Like, isn't that exciting? Like, he's, God's word was, was burning in his side of him and in his bones. And the truth of God, he's like, I'm done, but I can't. And the word of God just burned inside of him. And he, he was weary and he could not but hold it back. And the apostle Paul, it was said back to Matthew, it was said of the apostle Paul that when, you know, Paul traveled all over the world, right? All over the known world, all over that area of the world and, and, and opened churches, started churches, planted churches, did missions work, four different missionary journeys, traveling, traversing the, the known world. And it was said that when Paul got to a new city, the first thing that Paul would do is he would say, hey, let's go by and, and show me the jail because I want to see where I'm going to be sleeping tonight. Because Paul spent so much, that's a joke. Paul spent so much time in prison in his ministry. He really did. Read the life and, of Paul. He spent more time in, the, in jail than he did anywhere else. And it wasn't because God was mad at him. You know, I want to tell you something that's really near and dear to my heart. And it's something that, you know, that, that I, I just, it's kind of passionate for me because so many times we think and you think and I think and life thinks, you think that when things go bad, that God is mad at you. Let me tell you, let me tell you something real plain and simple. God's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. I promise you. Do you know why Moses didn't get to go to the promised land? He, 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 he misrepresented the Lord. And, and, and how did he misrepresent the Lord? God told him the first time to, to hit the rock. And the first time he hit the rock and water came out. And then God said the second time, go and, go and speak to the rock. And he went and, and the people were there and Moses was frustrated. And he went back to the people of God and he was angry. And he said, must I smite this rock a second time? And he goes back and he takes his staff and he, and he hits, a ro- hits the rock a second time. And water comes out and God honors him with water. But Moses broke the symbolism because the rock is a picture of Jesus. And the first time we, we, we strike the rock, we strike Jesus, Jesus dies on a cross. But moving forward, Jesus doesn't continue to die on the cross. We don't continue to strike Jesus. Now we speak to Jesus and by faith, we receive forgiveness. And and it was a picture that God was creating of his son. And so when Moses blew it and hit the rock twice outside of God's will, he he didn't go to go to the promised land. Now, when God showed up, God said, hey, Moses, 
you misrepresented me. That's what God tells Moses in this story. He said, I'm not mad at the people. And you, you presented to me like I was mad at him. He said, I'm not mad at them. Let me tell you something about God in that story. If there was ever a time where God really could have and should have been mad at somebody, that was the day. Like they deserved to be. And Moses rightfully so was frustrated when he got mad at him and he, and he said, well, what's wrong with you people? And he hit the rock again. And God shows up and he says, Moses, look, I, I'm not mad at the people. You know, God showed up last night and he said, hey, hey, Chris, Chrissy. That's what he calls me, Chrissy. No, I'm just kidding. He said, tell people tomorrow, listen, I'm not mad at them. And that's, that's again, that's just, that's just so Bible, right? Like God's not mad at you. Can't be mad at you. He's not going to hold or harbor anything for you. So anyways, moving along. Where are we at? Are we like in verse three yet? Oh, prison, prison, lawful, Paul. Okay, so um, just point being, that, that was it. God's not mad at us. When we go through trials, it's a part of God's will oftentimes. And we see these guys in prison. And then in verse four, it said, because John had said to him, it is not lawful that you have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Hey, will you guys allow me to take a quick rabbit trail off of this uh, little teaching here? It's in it, but it's not. So in verse four, John goes to Herod and he says, hey, it's not lawful for you to have this woman as your wife. Now, the, the problem is this. Check it out. Herod, was he a Christian? Was he a believer in God? No, he wasn't. He was a Roman. He, was, he didn't believe in God. He didn't serve God. He was not a follower of Jesus. He was not a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a pagan by biblical standards. And this man of God comes to the pagan and, and he gives them rules that are inside the house of, for people that live inside the house of God. Now, why did he do that? And what right did he have? Well, a couple things to think about. In, in this particular case, Herod was in charge of the Jewish people. And, and as a ruler over a Jewish area and a Jewish place, um, John felt like that guy should follow Jewish rules and laws. And maybe just as a concern of what is absolutely just right and wrong, and even for Herod's own soul, the Bible says that if you practice such things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I, I want to warn us, and I want to say something for us as a church and as a people. If you go to your non-believing friends who don't believe in God, they don't believe in Jesus, and, and, and they're living in sin, and you tell them, hey, your lifestyle is sin, or this behavior in your life is wrong, it's, 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 it's judgmental. It's not productive. It's not helpful. And it just turns people away and rightfully gives us that black eye that the church is judging everybody all the time. So don't be that Christian because here's the reality. What, what if your friend is, let's say sleeping with somebody or living with somebody he's not married to living in sin. And you go and you address it as John did here. And, and that person moves out from that person to get it right. And now they're no longer living in that sin that you've identified in their life. Is that person in any better shape than they were before? They still got a big problem, right? They're not saved. They don't know Jesus. And, and you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have God in my life. I didn't have a godly family. I had a, grew up fast. And, and, and when I was, I don't know, 15, 16, my Aunt Lydia 
who I'm super thankful for to this day and who's somebody who prayed for me. And, um, and a lot of reason why I walk with the Lord today is because my Aunt Lydia, and she was super, super Pentecostal. Hyper Pentecostal is as far as that way as you can go. And she took me and my, me and, and my sister to church one time. It was one of our first experiences in church. And this was a crazy church, like where they're, they're like falling over and shaking on the ground and the ushers come over and put, um, they put towels over the ladies that are wearing skirts that get slain in the spirit so that the Holy Spirit doesn't show the rest of the church their underwear. So they help out the Holy Spirit and they put these towels over them when they start shaking on the ground. And then they're, you know, they're, they're falling over, chairs are falling over and people are running up and down the aisles. And it's my first experience. And I'm going, what is going on here? But anyways, um, my aunt, it takes my sister and I to this church and the pastor, he tells my little sister, who's a year younger than I am, that if, if he can pray over her and he wants to cast demons out of her, demons of fear. And, and I think she might have confessed something or asked for prayer somewhere along the lines. And he said, can I, can I pray for you to cast out demons of fear? And, and I'm thinking, you know, well, that, that's, that's nice, Pastor, but you can cast all the demons of fear out of her you want. But there's a, one problem. She don't know Jesus. You might want to ask her if she wants to get saved first, ask Jesus in her heart, get her life right with God, and then start casting stuff out of her. Well, if she asks Jesus in her heart, you won't have to cast nothing out of her because the Holy Spirit's not going to dwell in the same place where demons, they're going to have to leave anyways. Whether she had demons or not, I don't know. And he did. He prayed over to ask demons to come out of her, cast demons of fear out of her. I think in the same service, this lady had like some chocolate smears on her face and he cast the demon of Twinkies out of her. But it, it was really going on, like, just like that. Somebody, had, somebody was smoking, and the guy cast the demon of nicorette and nic- nicotine out of him, and um, somebody else, I don't know. And, and this guy was just casting demons out of everybody. But the, the problem was, for my sister anyways, and even after that, she didn't last her experience in church. She didn't go back. She didn't, she just didn't get saved. And, and listen, the, the thing is first, the Bible says that Jesus said that we're fishers of men. And here's the deal. As Christians, this is the heart I want us to have. And I didn't mean to go off and, and, and make fun of this church. That wasn't my, 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 my thing. My, my thing is this, that we, we have to catch the fish before we can clean them, right? Like the, the purpose of, um, of, of making disciples, and as Jesus said, we're fishers of men. Sometimes we go out and, and what we want to do is we want to clean up the people's lives and their sins. And we want to judge their sins. But if they don't know Jesus, we're doing no good. We're, we're, we're trying to clean a fish before we catch it. And even if a fish is, is clean and still in the water, it's, it's, not, it's not with the Lord. And here's the other thing. Check this out. If rather than focus on somebody's sin, just loving the person that, that you're talking to, loving the person that's in their lives and sharing Jesus with them. And if, and if the Holy Spirit apart from us gets a hold of their heart and they receive God in their life and they want to follow God and, and they get saved. Now, now guess what happens? As the Holy Spirit makes residence in their heart, the Holy Spirit begins to convict them of their sin. And it's the Holy Spirit's job, job to convict them and show them what's right and wrong. And it's your job and it's my job to do what? I hope we know the answer to this. Love to love them. It's our job to love them. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to judge them and to convict them. And if we can't clean the fish before we catch them. So here, so again, you know, kind of a little side note. But as you witness and as you talk to your family, and yeah, we don't want, you know, harmful things. And it's okay to tell somebody you love that certain behavior is, is destructive because it's destructive. 
But just be loving in our approach, right? Be, be sensitive to the fact that it's the, it's the Holy Spirit who, who convicts people of sin. You love them, definitely lead them to Jesus. And if they don't know Jesus, fixing all the sins in their life ain't going to help them. You know, Jesus said on this note, last thing, and we will move on. I, I had this woman, a true story. I, I went to the post office on Thursday, and I met this woman on the steps. And she told me, hey, pastor, she knows me as a pastor. She said, pastor, she said, you know, there's a lot of darkness in Tooele. And um, especially over by the old hospital over there. And she said, I have this idea. And I don't know if you want to do it with me or not, but I'm going to do it. She's like, I'm going to go over and um, I'm going to, and a lot of people have demons. And she said, I'm going to go start casting demons out of people um, over there by the hospital and just in town generally, lots of, lots of demon possessions. And she says, this is my, my, my vision for ministry. And what do you think? You know, do you want to help me? And um, she's like, but we need it. Like our city needs this. We have so much demonic like oppression and, and so much demonic possession. And, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, I said, first of all, I said, just be careful. I said, if you're going to go and start, you know, casting out demons, Jesus said that if you cast a demon out of somebody and, and that person's house is cleaned and empty and, and it remains clean and empty, that demon's going to leave. And Jesus said he's going to go get seven of his friends, and now eight demons are going to come back and check the house. And if the house is empty and open, it's going to be eight times, seven times worse than it was before. Because if, if, you, if you cast a demon out of somebody, and it doesn't get replaced with the Holy Spirit filling their lives and Jesus in their hearts, then, then that, that temple is a house that the demons are going to go get seven of their friends and come back and find it swept and clean and reenter it. So I told her, I said, you're, you're, you're actually, I said, you've got to be careful. You could be doing, she, and she got it. She said, she said, are you saying I could be doing more harm than good? And I said, well, there's, a, there's potential. Yeah, I said, I said, and she said, well, then that's where you need to come with me and you can give him Jesus. <laughs> I thought, okay, now we, got, now we got something we could talk about. You know, now we got some teamwork going on because I don't think I'll be doing the demon casting. You can do that part. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll come in and give him Jesus. I have been a part of a couple uh uh, exorcisms in my life. Very few, but it's happened a couple of times where I had some genuine demon possessions that, that we've been a part of where we've prayed and, and God has um, delivered people from, from demon possession. But anyways, I said that was a rabbit trail and it was. So let's go on. And then in verse um, five, it says, and although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they, com- they counted him as a prophet. In verse six, it says, when Herod birthday was celebrated. So Herod was Roman by ethnicity and the Romans celebrated birthdays. I know there's some religious folks that want to tell you that it's, it's evil to celebrate birthdays. It's wrong to celebrate birthdays. And so I just want to tell you, I don't find that in the Bible anywhere. I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating birthdays. I don't think there's anything unchristian and there's definitely nothing biblical about celebrating birthdays. And those that say, you know, it's wrong to celebrate a birthday. They use this verse because this day they're celebrating Herod's birthday and John the Baptist dies. And there's another place in the Bible where a birthday is being celebrated and somebody else dies. But don't, don't let him put that trip on you. That's, that's not biblical. You enjoy your birthday celebrations. Just keep them godly. Amen. And then he says, um, therefore, he promised, verse 7, with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. We're going to talk about sorry in a minute, but let me unpack the situation. They're having a birthday party. And what do you think Herod and his friends were doing at this birthday party? 
They were sipping the gin and juice, right? They were, they were having the, the, the toddies or whatever, right? And they're drinking and, and they're getting a little bit loose and their inhibitions are beginning to fall down. And, and then Herod's niece, Salome, um, um, Josephus, the, the Roman historian, tells us more details of this day, recorded in multiple gospels with different details, But Salome comes in, who's related to Herod, and she's doing a seductive dance. She's um, scantily clad. It's a striptease type of performance. And and he's getting um, excited and enjoys it. And and he's drunk. And he makes a very poor decision in this party and in this case. And he says to her, you can have anything you want up to half my kingdom. Goodness gracious, dude. Was the dance that good? Half your kingdom? And so he offers this, this stupid oath. And, and she comes and, you know, this, this Jerry Springer family, right? Like a normal family. She might say, hey, I want, I, I want a business. I want to own my own business. You need to set me up with the, the, the um, guzzle business down the street. Go tell him I'm going to run it now and keep all that money or whatever. You know, I want Walmart or half his kingdom. He said half his kingdom. So she goes and she talks to her mom and she's like, what should we ask for? Should we ask for money? Should we ask for a new Lamborghini? Should we get cars, houses? What are we going to get, mom? Her mom's like, nah, get, let's, get, let's get John the Baptist's head. Sickos, right? What was she going to do with it? I think she put it by the entryway in her house with some reef around it or something. Put a little Christmas lights on it around Christmas time. Like sickos, what did they do with this head? But that's what she wanted. Her mom hated John the Baptist. So she comes in and then verse 9 says that the king was sorry. Now, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about biblical sorry versus um, non or worldly sorry. Okay, so everybody look at your neighbor and say, I'm sorry. Okay, look at your other neighbor, the one you chose second, and tell them you're sorry. Okay, so those are two different types of sorry. Okay. The standard of repentance is... Um, King David. King David is the heart in the Bible, in the Psalms, and in First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, the Chronicles. Lots of places that that teach in the Bible about this character in human history called King David. Well, King David becomes for us the standard and the teacher of what it means to have a godly sorrow. So the reason why I had you say sorry twice is because the premise of what is biblical is that there's two types of sorries. The sorry that Herod gives here, which he says that he was sorry that it happened. You know, I would venture to say everybody in prison is probably sorry that they got caught. I'd imagine there's oftentimes we're sorry that, um, that, 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 that it happened to us. Or we may even be sorry that it happened to somebody else. But that's not a godly sorrow that leads to repentance or godliness. The kind of sorry that God is, is, is honoring is the sorry that it broke God's heart. Is, I'm sorry that it offended God, my behavior. And and you can be sorry all day long and still stuck in your sin without true repentance. And the Bible talks about Esau. And it says, even though he sought it with tears, he was crying, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. And you would think, man, this guy is genuinely crying out to the Lord. And everything in the Bible should, should, should indicate that God would honor Esau's repentance and, and forgive him and heal him and touch him. And God doesn't do it. 
And the Apostle Paul says, even though Esau sought it with tears, it wasn't a godly sorrow. It was a sorrow about himself. He wasn't sorry that he offended God. He wasn't sorry that he broke the heart of God. He was sorry about how it affected his own life. And there's a huge difference. I want to tell you, listen, one of the most powerful and important things for you as a believer is that you develop this skill and this gift. Listen, you learn how to be broken and repent when you sin. Are, are you sorry when you sin to the point where it's, it's the one that God will accept? It's the one that God honors? If you're not sure how that happens, write this down. Psalm 51, and turn with me, if you will, quickly to Psalm 51, and let's take a quick look. Now, in Psalms 51, you guys know the story. King David has sinned with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband, Uriah. He lied. The prophet Nathan came to him, tells him a story about a rich guy who had hundreds of lamb who went to his neighbor's house that had one little ewe lamb that he loved and slept with him in his bed. And he stole his neighbor's one little ewe lamb. He sacrificed it and he served it to his guests. And David was so mad at the rich guy for stealing his neighbor's one little lamb. And David said, that man is going to die. And then Nathan said to him, you the man now, dog. Said to, said to, said to David, you are the man. And then David writes Psalm 51 in response. His heart was broken. He was repentant. And he was truly sorrowful that that he had broken the heart of God. Now, there's a guy in the Bible. Listen to this. There's a guy in the Bible, the first king of Israel. His name is Saul. Saul becomes for you and I a type of the Antichrist. He's a bad dude in the Bible. Most likely he's, it's hot where he's at. Most likely, probably, possibly Saul's a bad guy. He's an antichrist. He murders priests in the house of God. He consults mediums and spiritists and does all kinds of wickedness in the house of God. And he's a type of biblically. He's a picture of what the antichrist is going to do in the book of Revelation. And so Saul Now you look at King David and Saul's life and you compare them. And what you find is that David did some really egregious and really terrible sins. Almost as bad as if not almost as bad, if not as bad as Saul did. Saul goes down in history as one of the worst people that that, that the Bible ever records. David goes down in history as one of the greatest people the Bible's ever recorded. They both did the same terrible things in life. Why are they different? Why does God view one as as a great and decides on this one? He's so great that I'm going to compliment David and say, this is a man after my own heart. Like That's an amazing compliment from God himself about King David. Any one of us would love for God to say about us that we're, we're men and women after God's own heart. And, 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 and I'm going to send my son right through the line of David. And for all eternity, my son is going to be called the son of David. The king after the order of, of, of David. And the other one can't be positive. Pretty sure the other one's not even going to be in heaven. What's the difference? Psalm 51 and David repented. Exactly. 
David had a heart that was broken and had to be sincere. It had to be real. And it's crazy. I know it's crazy the way it works, but God absolutely honors a real heart that is broken and and that means it and that wants peace with God and wants to be right with God and wants to to, to not have anything between you and God. And David, in in these moments in his life, he, he came to this point where he was truly broken and demonstrated a godly sorrow. Look what he says in Psalm 51, beginning in verse number 10. We sing a song about this and, and really read the whole, the whole chapter when you get home about godly repentance. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Have you ever been afraid that God was going to take his Holy Spirit away from you? Like scary, right? I can remember one time thinking I missed the rapture. I was just a new believer a long time ago, brand new believer and I was driving in my car and I was driving for like an hour and a half and I had I'd asked Jesus in my heart and I was going to church and I was struggling with some things and I, I turned the radio on after an hour and a half and there was this old song by Keith Green and it, the song was called Left Behind and, and, and as soon as I turned the radio on to like Caleb or Air One or something, they were playing this old Keith Green song and it said, the sun has come and you've been left behind and I started bawling, oh, this the rapture. Like I was so afraid that I blew it and I, and I missed the rapture and it was God's spirit getting a hold of me. Cause talk about, talk about Psalm 51 repentance. Like I repented that day. Like, and I, God got a hold of me. I was scared and I was repenting and I was begging God for all these things. But David sincerely got to that place. And you know, the Bible says that when you, when you, when, when the Holy spirit, his job is to work in your life and show you, Hey, something in your life is not right. Look, let me help you with this. Let me, let's change this. This is the conviction. The word is of the Holy spirit. That conviction of the Holy Spirit, it draws you close to God. It, it takes out anything in your life that gets between you and God. It's, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, one of them. And, and so the Bible says that if every time, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right, in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this concept, this biblical concept, that every time that Holy Spirit is telling you about something in your life that, that he wants to change, that he can't use, and you disobey, it says like you pass a hot iron over your heart. And if you pass that hot iron over your heart of disobedience too many times, your heart can become hard. And this concept of having a hard heart after sin and as a result of sin, David was so afraid of it. And David so did not want it that David cried out to God in these places. And he said, God, create in me a clean heart. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. And this is the concept that God doesn't, and you don't, and we don't, and David didn't want a hard heart. And finding true repentance. And then um, in Psalm 51, right after 9 and 10 and 11, we get this 16 and 17 real quick. And then we'll go back to Matthew. And we'll just finish, finish through verse 13 today. It says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. I would give it. You do not delight. I'm in Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not desire burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God doesn't want your sacrifice. This biblical principle is repeated multiple times in the Old and New Testament. God doesn't want you to go and make things right. You sinned against God. Now you got to sacrifice something in your life. You got to do something in your life that, that, that hurts you, that's sacrificial in order to, to make penance to God. 
you got to go now for the next week and you got to go down to the church and you got to volunteer and you got to pick every weed on the grounds and you got to paint every wall in the church and you can't sleep and you can't eat anything but water. You're going to make this sacrifice. You're going to do something that's self-harming in order to make a sacrifice to, to make up for the sin, to make up for the problem that you have in your life. God says, I don't want it. God says, I'm not interested. Keep it. Because a sacrifice I don't desire. What I do desire is a broken and a contrite heart. So save the week of of trying to kill yourself to make God happy because he won't receive it anyways. And instead, get on your knees and ask God to forgive you. Ask God to heal you. Ask God to, to grant you a heart of forgiveness, a heart of repentance, a heart of godly sorrow. And if you come to God just in true repentance, you too will be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Amen? Amen. So we just got a couple more minutes and we'll finish up in Matthew. We won't, well, I was going to hopefully get through the uh, Jesus walking on water that he does here, but I don't think we'll get that far today. So let's, um, let's, look at, um, let's look at verse number 13. Maybe we'll get through 21. It says, Then Jesus heard it. He departed from there by boat and, de- and des- to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitude heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. So verse number 13 is right after Jesus got the the word that John the Baptist had just died. Look at verse number 13 and receiving the news that John the Baptist just died. Tell me, how did Jesus react? It says, Jesus heard it, he departed from there by a boat, and he desired to be by himself. The Bible tells us that Jesus, it's recorded for us that Jesus wept on two different occasions. How many times the Bible tells Jesus wept? Twice, okay? The first one, or not in order, but one of them was over the city of Jerusalem. He saw the city of Jerusalem, and he knew that in a few years, Titus Vespasian and the Roman army was going to sack the city and destroy the temple and that over the next 2000 years that Jerusalem would be a stumbling stone to the rest of the world because the Jews did not receive him as their Messiah. And because of the peace and the potential that Jerusalem had to be a a, a place of peace and a place of light and a place that received and shared Jesus with the rest of the world, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known your peace, If you had only known the potential that you had, that's one time Jesus cries. Another time Jesus gets emotional and he cries in the Bible. Anybody remember the second time? When Lazarus died, who was Lazarus? Lazarus was his buddy. Lazarus was, was friends with Mary and Martha and Mary and Martha. If anybody, if Jesus had any like family members, type members, it was Mary, Martha and Joseph. Besides the 12 disciples, of course, and his own flesh and blood family. But he spent a lot of time with Mary and Martha. He was constantly at Mary and Martha's house. And when, when Lazarus died, the Bible says Jesus wept. You know, I often encourage people that are dealing with grief. Jesus cried. It's okay to cry. I think it's healthy to cry. I think it's good to cry. And, and here's the other thing. We, we, we want to make sure that we understand, listen, there's no right or wrong way to grieve. Everybody grieves different. There's a book and it's called the seven stages of grieving, the seven stages that you'll go through. And in this book, it's got some good stuff, but it says these are the seven stages. These are the order you're going to go through them. 
Some people maybe face two of those, and some people maybe see five of the stages, maybe in different order, maybe in the same order, maybe in a different order. But everybody grieves completely different, and they're all okay. You know, there's this weird practice in the Bible about grieving. And and you guys know what it is? At a funeral, they would have wailers, professional mourners and wailers at a, at a Jewish festival funeral. They do it to this day. So you go to this service, and, and they have people hired there. They're going, ah, Johnny, come back, or whatever they're doing. They're wailing, and they're crying, and making all, that would be the worst, right? I'd be like, shut up. It was somebody I knew. And you think, what is this weird practice? But it's so biblical. It's so ingrained in Jewish culture, in Jewish history. It's something that God prescribed and they do it and, and, and they mourn and they wail. And they have other people hired to join in on, on the, the wailing in the morning. You think, why did God do this? But you know what he says? He says, for 30 days, you mourn and you wail and you cry. And you do whatever it is in your wheelhouse, whatever it is that makes you feel better. And, and, and for some people, when um, Lydia's mom died, her dad, within two days, emptied all of her belongings out of their bedroom in their house, personal belongings, and got rid of them. And people said, oh, you're so cruel. She's only been dead two days. And you've already got rid of all of her clothes and her things. Was he wrong because he did that? Come on, man. Some people keep that stuff for 20 years. Bedroom exactly the way the person died 20 years ago. Are they wrong because they kept it for 20 years? Everybody grieves different. For him, that's what he needed. He needed to get rid of the stuff. He he just couldn't have it there. But God says this, for 30 days, mourn, wail, deal with it how you have to deal with it. And then God says on day 31, you know what he says? Get Get back to work. Put your pants back on. Stop crying. Move on with life. You think, oh, that's harsh. Pastor's only giving me 30 days. The effects are going to last longer than 30 days. I'm not saying that. But I am saying for your own health. And because God loves you, he doesn't want to see you crippled for long periods of time in grief. And he allows us to grieve, and it's healthy to grieve. But at some point, God says because he loves you, you can always love the person, and you can always continue on with their memory. But after 30 days, now it's time to get up and walk. Now it's time to get up. Life is about the living. You have other people in your life that are still alive and they need you. And they want you to be a part of that. Amen? All right. And then, so, um, so Jesus is mourning in verse 13. And then in verse 14, it says, When Jesus went out, he saw the great multitude and he was moved with compassion. Somebody say, moved with compassion. Okay, this is repeated for us lots of times in the Bible about Jesus. And it's two things. It's, um, it's motivation for you and I, okay? It's motivation that we should also be moved with compassion. It, it's, it's, um, it, it's a, it's, it, and, and it's a call. It's a call on our life. It's a call that we, um, want to be like Jesus in that area. And we saw it and we're motivated because Jesus was moved with passion. In verse 15, it says, and when e- when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You know, Jesus told the disciples to do it. What did Jesus tell Peter? Feed my sheep, feed my lamb. What did Jesus say each one of you are? He said, each one of you is a fisher of men. 
You're called to fish for men and feed. And, and so he tells the disciples, you guys do it. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, what? Bring them here to me. Because a little bit in the hands of Jesus is a lot. And Jesus does math. And me plus Jesus can do anything. And me without Jesus or apart from Jesus can do nothing. The other gospel tells us that it was a little boy. It was a little boy in his Lunchable that showed up with five loaves and two fish. And, and, and Andrew, who was always, when the Bible we see Andrew, he's always bringing people to Jesus. One of the ministries of disciples, you and I have bringing people to Jesus. And Andrew brings this little boy to Jesus. And this little boy says, I know it's not much, but I hope it'll help. And he gives Jesus his lunch. What if you're that little boy's mom that day? Think of how that day started. Your little son comes up and he says, hey, mom, mom, mom. The crowd is going around and they're going to follow and Jesus is going to teach. I want to go hear Jesus today. His mom says, okay, all right, fine. You can go, but, but don't go without lunch. I don't want you to go hungry. Come in the kitchen. Let me make you some lunch. She whips up some, some, some loaves and a few pieces of fish and she puts them in his lunch pail, you know, brown bag, and she rolls it. She writes his name on the outside and puts kiss marks on it and, and she hands it to him. She had no idea it was going to feed 5,000 people a little bit later, this little lunch bag. But in the hands of Jesus, God can multiply it. You know, we just did a, just received a special offering here, and I think it's exactly what happened. Everybody just did what they can do, and God multiplied it. And God, and God provided $62,000 in one week. And it was just, it was multiplication. And listen, in God's hand, you know, this, this one, this, all the miracles in the Bible are attacked. So just know they are miraculous. They're just miraculous. For you and I, and without getting into it, because we're going to be done for today, you know, if you can swallow Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. Do you have a hard time that Jesus took five loaves and he reached into the basket and he started pulling out and every time he reached in, there was more until he fed probably up to 20,000 people because it says 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So if all the men had wives, that 5,000 men brought a, brought a girl, that's 10,000. If they all had two kids, that's 20,000. If they all had three kids, that's 25,000. If some of the wives didn't come and some of the kids didn't come, maybe it's 15,000, but it's a lot of people. And Jesus is feeding them you know, people say all kinds of crazy stuff about the miracles and explain them away in the flesh. But it's just a miracle, and I don't have a problem with it, right? God can, God can multiply the fish and the loaves, amen? Amen. Let's have the worship team come up, close us in a song. Um, and then um, as they're coming up, you guys can close your Bibles and... Um, In verse 19, as we close, as they come up, when Jesus broke the bread and he began to give thanks, the Bible says that he, he looked up. You know, the, the only um, type of prayer that, that we don't find recorded in the Bible is this one. If I said to you guys right now, let's pray, what would everybody do? You know, but listen, that, and that's not wrong. Just, just what we do. It's just our culture, our custom. But nowhere in the Bible is it recorded of closed eyes or folded hands. That's, that, that started like in a Sunday school class somewhere. And some Sunday school teacher was trying to get all the third graders to pray, and they were throwing crayons and smacking each other. She said, all right, fold your hands and close your eyes. Let's pray. 
Jesus' disciples, I'm sure when Jesus said, let's pray, they would have probably raised their eyes and, and looked up to the heavens. And so there's no right or wrong way, and there's definitely nothing prescribed. And God doesn't really care what the posture of your hands and your legs and your feet are. You can stand like a pretzel and pray. It doesn't impress God. What impresses God is the condition of your heart as you pray. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. If anybody's in here today and you, you want to get right with the Lord and you want to ask God in your heart, you just want to, you want to have that godly repentance that, that the Lord offers that we talked about today that we saw in 51, um, you have the opportunity just to say yes to Jesus. You can do it right where you sit. I'm going to pray for you. And, and if that's you and there's something in your life, you, you can talk to God. You can ask God directly to do a work in your life. It's as simply as just saying yes to Jesus. It all means the same thing to me and to God. Just yes. I say yes to you, Jesus. Yes, I need a healing. Yes, I want to receive you in my life as my Lord and Savior. Yes, I need a touch. Yes, I need to know what's true. Yes, yes, yes. I say yes to Jesus. I surrender to Jesus. And then after we're done praying and, you know, you're talking to God as I pray, We'll be up front, and if you'd like individual prayer during the last song, you can come up, and we'd like to pray for you. If there's anything on your heart or your life that you need prayer for. So let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we thank you, Father, so much for this day. I thank you for each person that's in here, God. Lord, I pray for anybody in here today, God, who, who's seeking that godly repentance. Lord, and when we reach that, what a fabulous, what a powerful place to be in life that we've, we've connected with you. And that we're, we're sorry that we've broken your heart. And we're in a place that we have a broken and a contrite heart. And the reason why that's so powerful and so important is because that's a heart that you're going to pour into. That's a heart that you're going to fill up. That's a heart, God, that you're going to use for your glory. That's a heart that's going to receive love and joy. You're going to receive the gifts of the Spirit. So God, help each one of us to have a broken and a contrite heart. Lord, help each one of us to repent of areas of our lives that we need to repent of, things that you've called us to walk away from. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here today that needs to ask Jesus in their heart for the first time or rededicate their lives, that right now as they're just saying yes to you, I'm praying for them. I'm praying that they would be being saved, that they're repenting, and it's between them and you, so you know who they are, Lord. And there's no magical sinner's prayer, but Lord, just simply saying yes, I receive Jesus. I believe that he died and he rose again the third day. I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart. And I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.